0: We are giving great powers in the hands of users, so they need to understand those powers and handle the responsibilities of the powers. I mean, anyone can contribute, I think. The problem is people mainly think that contributing to an open source project, it's mainly coding. That's true. There's a lot of technical stuff to deal with, but out of just coding, there are a lot of other stuff.
1: Hi, I'm Liz Fong jones I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OliCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OliCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program
2: dedicated to helping startups bring our developer products to market. For more information, visit
1: heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OliCast. That's at O11YCAST.
0: So uh, my uh, my first usage of of Kubernetes was uh, through my previous role uh, as a performance engineer. And at that time, I was mainly dealing with partners and trying to build integrations. And... At that time, I had a close connections with Dynatrace, and Dynatrace were working on Captain, one of the uh, framework that provides uh, continuous delivery and other use cases. And yeah, basically said, hey, let's build an integration. And then I take, hey, I'm not afraid about it, let's code. <laughs> and then I, I, I discover a few things. I said, whoa, uh, okay, that's, that's different from what I experienced. And yeah, so basically the first week was uh, a lot of uh, sweating, A lot of sweating, a lot of swearing, (laughs) uh, a lot of nightmare, (laughs) a lot of drinking. And at the end, yes, the next week I was confident. Or maybe I was drunk, I don't know. But at least I was confident.
2: (laughs) Uh, this, This sounds like a good time for you to introduce yourself.
0: So yeah, my name is Henrik Rakset. So I am a, a cloud native advocate at Datatrace. Uh, prior to uh, to Trace, I've been working in the performance engineering landscape more than fifteen years plus as a consultant and and then uh, as an advocate for a vendor. And out of that, I uh, have launched uh, six months ago around that a YouTube channel to help the community to get started in observability topics so more on technical level side Mm -hmm. and also um because i'm my heart is still with the performance engineers i still produce content for performance engineers and i that's why i i'm part of the one of the producers of a podcast called perfbytes as well
2: and what did you say was the name of your youtube channel for observability
0: it's is it observable
2: is it observable excellent we will put that in the show notes
0: so, um, the name was inspired. I don't know if you remember, but a few years back, there was a show where there was a, like a, a doctor saying, Is it, does will it blend? Yeah, <laughs> yeah will it
2: yeah, blend? We'll blend. <laughs> <laughs> you, you should have such great stickers that like mimic that. It's
1: like, Is it observable? Will it instrument? With a blender.
2: Yes. Because <laughs> what is production if not the worst blender ever? It's whatever you feed into it, it is just going to get chopped up. And spat and back, back out.
1: So I see there's videos on things like open telemetry instrumentation step by step and how to collect metrics and Kubernetes and how to build a Prometheus query something, something client, something.
2: Yeah, I was really excited to have you on because it, you know, I was, so while you and I were on a panel together like a week or two past. and And while we were doing that, it occurred to me just how little we've really heard from performance engineers in the modern observability movements. You know, and, and this is near and dear to my heart because I used to identify very much as a database performance engineer. And like, you know, talk about people who know about instrumentation and the value of like being able to see what the hell your code is doing. Like performance engineers were kind of the original observability engineers, weren't they?
0: I agree. I mean the the the, the requirements when when you do a, a load test when you stress a system Obviously, the, the the number of data that you need to understand precisely what is going on is completely different from a normal production uh, system. Usually, you can pick up metrics every 30 seconds, one minute or so. But then there is this aggregation. And as a performance engineer, you say, when you start saying, oh, we're going to aggregate, then I don't know what happens, but people turn red and angry <laughs> because you need details. Yeah. And aggregation is the opposites of details.
2: Yeah. I have so many stickers that are like aggregates are the lies the devil tell you and many other like nasty. Yeah. I fucking hate aggregates. Like that's the, like, yes, they're cheap. Yes. They're simple. Yes. They're useful for looking at trends over time. But if you actually want to understand your code, you have to look at it like request by request, like, you know, hop by hop, like all of that context, as much context as possible, you know, otherwise you can't correlate like, oh, these errors, what do they have in common? You know, if you, if you prune them, like the other problem with metrics is, you know, the cost goes up uh, linearly with the number of metrics that you try and collect. And every metric is a question that, you know, you can't ask multiple questions of your metrics because of the way they're stored on disk. You really need those wide structured events. Like really wide, like hundreds of dimensions per request, in order to tell, oh, so these errors are, you know, all of the ones from this this ID, or you know, this this type of device, and this language pack, and this this region, and this shard key, and this all these things. Because if you can't chain together all these high cardinality dimensions, you can't describe these very precise conditions under which a bug is is reproduced or seen.
0: Yeah, and in in, uh, in fact. So there's a big trend with the performance engineer is, the, let's get the raw data, the, as much raw data as possible, especially when you do the, the, your tests. So then you have enough materials to understand, because when you deal only with averages, if you have a very low response time, then you have spikes. But if you start to do averages, then those spikes, suddenly you don't even see them. It's like, disappeared.
1: Exactly. So you miss the most interesting pieces of data. The,
2: the most interesting pieces of data are always the outliers, right? Even ninety nine point nine nine percentiles can cover over a, a whole bunch of sins, <laughs> right? You really need to be able to see the max and the min, and you know, in and of themselves, they are always interesting. Uh,
0: yeah, but I think from for when you when you work with the production, that doesn't uh, dealing with a higher granularity. I think. That makes sense, because as you mentioned before, you're looking for trends, uh, you're looking for patterns, so that that could make the job. But when you're testing, obviously you're spending hours or you're spending a lot of investment in saying, we need to stress this and validate this. Right. And then it could be very, uh, I think it would be a big shame to say, okay, so I did my test, but I have no clue what happened. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure like, the point? <laughs> any product leader would just be very, very angry about it.
2: Yeah. And I think that like, the, the shift here of, like, pr- from performance engineering is very much about the health of the system, right? Like what does happens to the system while all these things are happening versus observability, I think of as being very much about every single user is a test of their very own, right? And you have to look at the experience of every si- and users are the highest possible cardinality for the most part in, in your data set you know, but like, they don't actually care if your system is 99.99% up, you know, if the shard that they happen to be on is down, even if it's like 0.001% of the traffic, it's like, could be, and this is the thing about distributed systems, like the more complex our systems get, the more there are these little corners lurking everywhere where, you know, for a hundred percent of people, it sucks and it's completely like drowned in the overall like numbers, the overall statistics. So you have to be able to like slice and dice by every possible dimension in order to, in order
0: to locate them, and and uh, this this remind me uh, uh, a story. In fact, uh, to be honest, it was in 2003, and at uh, that time there was few profiling uh, systems. I mean, CA Wiley was there for for many uh, Java environments, and uh, I remember we were using the HP uh, Mer- uh, the Mercury slash HP suit at that time, and HP came up with uh, this. Solution called HP diagnosis. I remember that. And uh, we were so excited to say, oh, we have it part of our license. It's amazing. It means we were going to trace it. So we're going to be drilled down on everything. Just give that to the hands of a performance engineer. You'll see they will be just uh, excited. And then they launch the test. And then they discover reality, the real world. When you do profiling at that time, at least, because uh, I mean, things have been improved significantly in that side. But I remember we were doing our test, and even with five users, the system was not usable at all. The profiling system was slowing down everything.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, it was a nightmare. And so we said, then we said, all right, profiling is nice on the paper, <laughs> but on, on the real life, it's, it's completely different.
2: Just like trying to attach GDB to a running thread or a running trace, right? Like you, you just can't do it. Like the amount of information is just going to drag your system to a halt. So I want to circle back to Kubernetes for just a sec, though, because we at Honeycomb we just finished migrating from you know the stuff that I set up six years ago, which was you know a lot of auto scaling groups and and VMs and everything to to using Kubernetes for stuff. And we did this rather reluctantly. Like and there was a bit of just like oh fuck okay you know it's time. And like yes, there are some technical reasons. Like you know we'll get spikes in traffic and we weren't able to respond within seconds. You know we we're only able to respond within minutes and scale up. And so. You know, Kubernetes solves some real problems for us. But like we keep stressing the fact that it's not about Kubernetes. Like people keep coming to us asking for like Kubernetes monitoring s- solutions and everything. It's like, okay, we can give you that, but that's not what you care about. What you care about is the performance of your application for the most part. Right? What you need to be instrument in is your application. And and yes, like the under the underlying infrastructure, you know. Yes, yeah, sure. But, you know, the stuff that you need to care about, this is it's your crown jewels as a company. The code that you're changing every day, the code that your users use, the code that your team is supposed to
1: know intimately, right? You know, infrastructure should be as boring as possible, right? It's like the weather. I mean, you need to know what the weather is to know whether your car can like maybe maybe should go slower than usual and maybe that's due to like there's ice on the road. You need to know that. But it's not what you're going to change. It's it's not like what makes your business special. But you're through, you need your car's dashboard. You
2: need to you need all the information about how fast am I going? You know, am I slowing down? Am I speeding up? You need you need these, you
1: need these rich feedback loops. So you can make decisions about driving the car. So you can make decisions,
0: exactly. Yeah, but if you were driving a diesel car since, I don't know, many, many years, and suddenly you shift to an electric car, and then suddenly you, you discover they you have to charge it every night, and it's the same thing. It's a change of mind. I think Kubernetes is great, but it deserves to understand. I mean, it's like... A, uh, there is no magic without tricks behind the scene. So you have to understand the tricks that are happening behind the scene to handle them in your day-to-day job. I think you make the, the good point. They are, in the company, in the organizations, there are people that are mainly focused on application, users, business. So they will be very, very uh, up to looking at how is my code running how is my are my users satisfied, and so on. And then the, the, there's another side of the organization which operates clusters for several, 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 several projects. And they are... They're platform teams. Yeah, and those, they have other expectations.
2: And I come from that side, right? So I'm not trying to like diss on my people when I say this, that it's increasingly a commodity, Right, like it, every year we, f- we move further up the stack. Like when I was starting out, I had to drive, I had to get a taxi to go to the colo in the middle of the night to flip the power switch on the MySQL, you know, server when it when it went down. Like I don't think about that anymore. Nowadays, even people who are running Kubernetes don't really think about Linux anymore, right? And and we're and we're, we're moving up and up the stack, which is good because it means we can do more powerful things with fewer people and less time. But I think it does mean that like. If you're not solving infrastructure problems for for the world, right? If if you're solving infrastructure, then those those are your crowd If you're solving other business problems, it's your responsibility as a platform team to be as cheap and as boring as possible and to not get dragged down into the weeds to the extent possible, which is always the caveat, right? Like anytime you're doing something new or interesting, you will have to understand what you're doing.
0: But I think the the main problem is that few users, when they start using Kubernetes, they suddenly say... Oh, it's completely different. And then they, they suddenly forgot about, oh, Kubernetes runs on servers, on virtual machines. So it means that the constraint that I had a few years back, I will still have them in Kubernetes. Yes, that's true. Oh, I didn't know that. And people just forgot about this. You know, you could build services that will allocate ports by node port or cluster IP services. And at the end, I mean, you're running on the machine, and this machine has a num- limited number of ports and number of IPs. So, if you don't keep track on that, then one day you you just deploy a new uh, a new workload, and then it says, "Up, oh, there is no no port available."
2: This is one of the reasons that I think that most people should not be running Kubernetes themselves. They should be using, you know, Amazon's Kubernetes, or they should be making people who do Kubernetes for a living do their Kubernetes. Unless, you know, as soon as you've like exceeded some amount of scale, you you have custom problems and this doesn't hold true. But like most people starting out, you know, and this is why I get a little pissed off about Kubernetes is because I feel like it was like this resume driven development for a long time where it's just like, it, it wasn't actually solving real problems for most people who adopted it, but it was the cool thing. So they wanted to adopt it so they could get better jobs when they were using it. It just irritates
0: me. <laughs> I think what I like with the, the notion of communities, I mean, Ansible has introduced it, is the notion where I can code my app and then I can design through code how I want to deploy it, how I want to manage it. And this is, I think, it's just a great and it helps to automate, it helps so many things. Uh, so I think we are giving a great powers in the hands of users, so they need to understand those powers and handle the responsibilities of the powers.
2: Well, that's the thing yes it is very powerful and you do need to understand a lot in order to use it well which seems like a step backwards honestly from the idea of having these composable infrastructure blocks that that you can use without having to like dedicate your life to becoming an expert in them
0: i think the, it's it's it reminds me a few years back when when the clouds were starting everyone say oh it's wonderful uh yeah everything scales automatically it's it's less expensive oh great 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 and everybody was like drinking the marketing messages from fewer hyperscalers and they were going just straight to the cloud. And then a the, the few months back, I say, oh, in fact, it's expensive. Uh, yeah. yeah. But at least you can take one server for an hour and just delete it. I think that's a luxury. Yeah. So it's the same thing. You need to understand the, the consequence of a such a service and then manage the consequence of it.
2: I completely agree. You're already one of my favorite guests because you're not scared to disagree when we say something. That's fantastic. People are always too, too quick to agree when they go on podcasts and it's, it's, it's not good. Switching gears slightly, I saw something on your, on your LinkedIn that I have to ask about. What is a Christmas performance engineer?
0: So a uh, few years back, I started a... Uh a conference in the name of uh, my previous employees. So it was uh, Neotis that now has been acquired by Triscentis. And we wanted to create a conference that will bring all the performance engineer. So we decided to create a conference where we named Performance Advisory Council. And we did a live event. And we said that, oh, for the live event, why don't we do a 24 hours live conference where we start from at 6 a.m., uh, in local French time. And we start with the uh, Australian speakers, and then we follow the sun. And then we were after Australia. Uh, we started with New Zealand and Australia and then India. And then suddenly we, w- we went to Europe. And then once we covered Europe, then we moved on to uh, East Coast and, and then finished with West Coast. So we stayed 24 hours up. I was the one moderating the conference for 24 hours. Uh, in fact, a bit more. And we had 22 speakers per conferences. And I moderate uh, four editions of this conference, and every day edition we we did different themes. So the first one we were a bit shy, so we did just the, we utilized the Tron theme. The second one we did uh, Pack because it was uh, the conference was called the uh, PAC, so Pack. So we did Pack to the future. Uh, so that was the second edition, and then we did the third was Jurassic Pack. And last we did uh, the pack heroes. So there was a rock and roll rock, rock star uh, concert. So that was my last uh, my last event uh, with, uh, with, re- with Neotis.
2: But where does Christmas Performance Engineer come in?
0: When the COVID, the pandemic arrived, we thought, oh, we're losing track with our community. So let's do every month, once per month, we do um, a meetup where we organize and we uh, bring Eight experts, like a round table, and I was moderating this. And then we were inviting people for one hour and a half, discussing about their different topics, uh, performance in IoT, performance for whatever for user experience, whatever. And the first one was during Christmas. So that's why I changed the role just to announce the sense. So I'm a I'm a Santa.
2: Ah. I just saw that and immediately assumed, ah, the biggest load of all is over the holidays. So it's like a special role. Well, all year they're preparing for Christmas load.
0: No, no, no. It was really about uh, promoting uh, the, the assets because I also changed my role for, um, for, uh, for Jurassic Pack. I call myself the, the doctor.
2: Got it. <laughs> well, that's very cute, but disappointing. <laughs> now I want this to exist in the world. Wouldn't that be cool, Jess? <laughs>
1: no, no, no. I'd rather be like a Christmas drunkard or something.
2: It doesn't mean you need to be performance engineering on Christmas it's oh, so that okay. everybody gets to be drunk on Christmas. You do all the performance engineering in advance so that, you know. Oh, okay. You know, because one of my pet peeves is, is how everybody like has a self-inflicted disaster over the holidays where they're like, cool, it's after Thanksgiving. Let's freeze deploys for a month. Yeah. You know, and then they keep writing code and it all rots. and.
1: Depending on how much you enjoy spending time with your family over Christmas, it can be a positive to have pages to answer
2: oh i'm not saying i'm not saying do stupid things i'm not saying you know but like saving up all of the changes for weeks or or, or however long just guarantees that as soon as you turn everything back on the worst outages of my life have all happened right after the holidays when they unfrozen the you know a freeze
1: right the thought that's that's kind of jurassic parky what will you find in the amber in january that's <laughs> kind of jurassic parky
2: but like The point is that you shouldn't be freezing deploys. You should be thoughtful about what you merge. But as soon as you merge it, you should assume that it's going to go live
1: quickly. You know, if you don't want to ship something, don't fucking merge it. (laughs) Code freezes are one of those things that's like each individual decision of no, I'm not going to ship this now is probably not bad. But in aggregate, it's bad.
0: But the the code freeze, I remember, that was mainly when we were dealing with Waterfall. I I never, I I don't remember seeing code freeze.
2: Oh, people still do it. They totally do it. Everybody still does it. Okay. Especially for, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. Two weeks there, like almost everybody does code freezes. Also, like, like before a big release, they'll do
1: a code freeze.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to reiterate, I'm not saying keep like deploying like anything and everything. I'm just saying that, you know, it rots. It rots when it's in the code base and it's not live. You should assume that whatever is checked in to get is live, like within within minutes, an hour at most. Right, right. And and if it's going to rot on your branch too, but then you know it's rotted. You know it's rotten. You treat it with the appropriate care. You get it code reviewed. You you know, and, and part of why this is so, so bad, I think, is because it encourages so many bad habits around deploys in general, because it encourages you to batch a bunch of things up. That's terrible. You should be deploying one person's changes at a time, right? So that you can tell what actually happens, so that you can roll back or, you know, like... Otherwise it breaks and you're like, okay, 13 people committed to
1: this. Now everyone's afternoon gets ruined while we like... Yeah, and you can page all of them and they'll all be like, uh, it's probably somebody else's.
2: Or almost worse, they'll all jump in and then they'll all like blow their entire afternoon. Like 15 people just like lost an entire workday because one person's change didn't didn't work. Yeah. Also, I really... I really feel like CI/CD. like I'm trying to like, like drive this, that, you know, CI/CD does not stand for continuous delivery anymore. It stands for continuous deployment because what the fuck is the point of CI? What the fuck is the point of continuous integration? If you're not preparing it to be into production and don't say, well, we can deploy at any point that's bullshit. You know, it. you, you know, that you don't know if it works or not until it's in production. Like it should be automatic. You know, I love that quote that shipping is the heartbeat of your company and it should be as regular and as boring and as automatic and is not a big deal as a heartbeat. Like it should just, it should happen in the absence of action, right? You merge, it happens. You shouldn't need somebody to go, I'm going to deploy now, trot, 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 see what, you know, like that. That's just such an anti-pattern. I don't understand why people are still doing it in this day and age.
0: Beware. I'm pressing enter. Beware. Yeah!
2: <laughs> <laughs> the key press that brought down the world. <laughs> Let's talk about open telemetry and what it means to be a good contributor to the open source ecosystem.
0: I think it really depends on the I mean, anyone can con- contribute. I think the problem is the people mainly think that contributing to an open source project it's mainly coding many technical aspects, yeah, that's true we there's a lot of technical stuff to do to deal with, but out of just coding, there are a lot of other stuff um I mean documentation I mean, look around there is a lot of open source project I think where the documentation. I think could be really improved <laughs> to uh, increase the adoption. So people doing the really good documentation could help a lot of projects. Also uh, providing training, uh, content, helping customers to adapt. Uh, so I think it's just not about only technical stuff.
1: And it's not only the documentation on the site, it's not only the official OpenTelemetry, for instance, documentation. Your YouTube channel with videos about OpenTelemetry is contributing to OpenTelemetry.
0: When I, I first uh, made a step in OpenTelemetry, uh, my first reaction is to say, okay, so which repo? Because when you just look at OpenTelemetry, there is one repo for every single uh, agent. And then there is the open technology collector. Then there's another one for the operator. And then you start You say, okay, 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 okay. Where I'm going to start? I mean, we are engineers. We work on it. We are not afraid of spending time and, and trying things. But I, I'm pretty sure that if you are under very high pressure and you need to Provide results to your company. And then someone says, hey, we need to implement OpenTelemetry. I think that could be very stressful for someone who I never looked at the community itself. So I think we need to have people helping. Yeah. Because I think OpenTelemetry is, is uh awesome to have a standard where company can rely on a standard, which means if today I instrument my code and I decide to use one of the three backend vendors of the market and Three years later, I said, oh, there's a new one I want to change. Then the effort of changing is very minimal. And I think that's great news. It's a huge step forward.
2: We've been needing this for, I remember, Randy, about this like eight years ago, just like, why are we so behind as an, as an industry when it comes to standards for instrumentation and telemetry? And like, how do we do this? People are asking us all the time. How do I instrument my code? And I'm just like, oh, my God, we're starting from scratch with every single person. Because they've all like been kind of brought up on the lie that automatic instrumentation will save their life. And it won't. Right? Auto instrumentation is about as good as automatic commenting for your code. It's not nothing. Yeah.
1: It doesn't translate intent. It, it'll like get you to the hospital, but it, it won't like apply the fibrillator. Yeah. It's not targeted. It's not, you as an engineer, you know, when
2: you're writing the code, you know, what matters, you know, why you did it, you know, what's going to be useful to you debugging, you know, five years from now. And you have the capability right there to capture that original intent and embed it in your code for future generations to, to like, love you for it. And, and like uh, relying on automatic instrumentation, it's just a very blunt instrument. It's a great one for getting started for bootstrapping, whatever, but it's a blunt instrument that will never actually like translate your intent into code.
0: I agree. And I think this is what I, I, I tried to, to look for materials. I didn't find any, any materials that were sort of utilized so far as a methods within organizations, because again, the project is still new, but I think it would be great to have process for companies saying okay first I'm doing some testing my app is not in production so let's instrument at least my test cases so then when I do my testing I can at least look at the distributed traces that are been produced do I have any details to help me to troubleshoot my issues related to my tests and then then you you adjust you improve and I think that will be I, I try to find a way of saying let's have at the end of a CI or a pipeline, calculate like a software tracing covered. Say, part of all the tests that you had, you had 90% of distributed traces generated for your test cases. And normally, the test cases should be at least covering most of the risk, most of the areas of your application. There will be a way, of at least before moving on to production, to be able to find a way of keeping track on how how good you are in instrumenting uh, your applications. Because I think now, like you mentioned, we all start with uh, automated instrumentation agents, which are great, but again, those will only be instrumenting existing frameworks, but then, potentially, out of the framework, you have a very critical method that your business is doing to calculate, I don't know, Prices or I don't know uh, a payment methods or a risk uh, level of a customer, and yeah. maybe you would be interested to also instrument that part because if it fails, then in terms of business or risks for the company, it w- it's much or higher than just keeping track. It's huge. On on I don't know if my uh, HTTP method has been open or not. You know you know what I mean. Yeah
2: <laughs> yeah no no totally. I feel like there's it's a split between you know black box monitoring of that type. It's very much, it reflected the the division between dev and ops, right? You got developers who write the code, you got ops people who run the code. And so all they can do is sit in the outside of the house, knocking on the door going, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay?
1: How's the weather in there?
2: How's the weather in there, right? When what you need is to blend those and to be inside the house going, okay, here's where the furniture is. Here's where the doors are. Here's what's important.
0: And also, I think the the, the moving to uh, to the metrics, I think I'm really excited about metrics and going through uh, OpenTel with metrics because it's, now we are able to, of course, metrics, we've been uh, uh, ingesting metrics since years and ages. I mean, th- we are used to that, but we are starting to include since maybe six years, more context to the metric. Yes. So then the metric itself is not just a a data point on a graph. It has more meaning. And I think being able to produce metrics on the code level to attach it to a specific context to a code execution, I mean, that is just amazing. You will then use the data differently.
2: I agree. Although I think that, that, honestly, metrics are a very mature technology. They've been used in production for like, you know, what, 30 years now. And I feel like we've really kind of come to the end of the road in terms of innovation with metrics. And I think that the future is really about... You know, wide events, which, you know, you append a couple of structured fields and now you've got traces, you know, where they bundle up all that context. Because of how metrics are stored on disk, there are limitations to like how much cardinality they can they can afford. You know, capturing tags is incredibly expensive. The cost goes up linearly when you're adding more metrics. You know, I just think that it's kind of a, it's a dead end of a data model at this point. And I, I'm really looking forward to
1: seeing more we do. I like that trend about including more context in the metrics in order to hook it up with the corresponding traces and spans. Yeah, because I want to know when I turned this particular corner, was it wet? And Open Telemetry does this with the
0: resource. Yeah, and then you can just search by by your trace ID, and then you get the metrics attached to it. So then I want to I don't I want to see this particular trend related to. Uh, I, let's say I have a, a range of trace IDs, and then I search for that, then I get the distribution of the metrics related to this. I mean, I see a lot of uh, useful implementation where I have a, a bunch of people that had problems, so I, I extract all the W3 traces, and then I search for the metrics related to this. There will be a way of just... boom.
2: Yeah, but see, if the metric is embedded in the trace, then, then it's basically just a key value pair in the event. Yeah. And for that, two thumbs up. What I'm against is like the metrics that are disconnected from the connective tissue of the event.
0: No, no, it needs to be connected.
2: Okay, then
1: we're completely on the same page. Okay, okay, yeah. Metrics in wide events of I'm turning this corner, I emit the event, I include whether it's wet. Exactly. And then I don't have to have a detailed weather report for every corner.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And I think this is where people get confused because
2: when, I've tried to be very clear. Whenever I say the word metric, I'm talking about the number with tags appended and not the event because otherwise people get really confused. Before we run out of time, though, I, I wanted to talk about this in a slightly different angle, which you know, the thing I was ranting about on Twitter last week, which is just that certain members of the open telemetry, you know, a lot of vendors have gone all in on on OTel, like like us, like Lightstep, like you know, New Relic, like Splunk, and you know, it should be better for everyone because if you instrument your code once, then with just a couple of you know config tweaks, you should be able to try out different vendors, right? This is great for people. You don't have, you don't have to suffer vendor lock-in, right? You you get to try out different vendors. You get to make them compete for your business on on functionality and, and effectiveness. But the problem is, right now, Datadog is the main offender, where they're telling their people that you know it's deprecated, that it's not stable, that it's not good. First of all, these are integrations that were based on the Datadog integrations, which they announced with great fanfare like two or three years ago. They're like are integrations and now they're telling people behind closed doors not to use them that it's not safe and there was even a guy who, who had a pull request with the Datadog collector, which would, you know, let people like move back and forth from Datadog. And the sales team behind behind closed doors pressured him into retracting it. They're willing to support, quote unquote, support Otel in order to get data in from other vendors, but they're not supporting Otel to let people move freely. They're trying to get everyone into their locked garden and then get them on their own custom integration so that they can't move. And I find that so offensive.
0: I mean... I think if you keep that position, the market will see it and it won't be very positive for them.
2: I hope so. They're the dominant player in the ecosystem though, so...
0: Yeah, but I think now, I mean, most of the people knows the value of open telemetry, and, and most of the vendors is trying to improve it to bring value. And I think what I'm really focused is uh, making sure that the adoption is here because at the end, if if everyone adopts it, then it's, it's a win. Exactly. And we are able to move and, and improve and, and cover all this stuff. It's it's just great.
2: Yeah. This is a situation where where users are going to have to hold companies accountable, right? It's it's the same anytime you have an open standard or open source, or whatever. You know, some kids are going to think that they can get all the upside and none of the downside. But, you know, at the end of the day, users have to say, is this acceptable or not? Are we going to put up with this behavior or not?
0: And uh, I think the, the now at the moment... Uh, the community is trying to cover at least the, the feature that will help to adopt and make the, the use case uh, work properly on their environments. But uh, I'm pretty excited to see what's going to be next because I think there are a lot of things, uh, especially with the logs. It's very time consuming to uh, build logs, log pipelines, ingest them and make it a smart way.
2: And logs need to just die in a fire, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> unstructured logs I should just be end of life. Like nobody's allowed to admit another unstructured log ever.
0: <laughs> but I, I think the, the logs, I mean, I'm I'm, pretty, I'm a big fan of logs, to be honest, because um, it's happened very often that the the level of detail that you're looking for to be able to understand precisely a problem is only available in logs.
1: Uh, Yes. Well, but- that, that's that's not like you like logs going forward. That's like you like logs in the past. I mean, is it impossible to put that detail in traces? I think we're on the same page here. I think that we're just
2: t- using different terms. What I am advocating is for these a- arbitrarily wide structured data blocks. You can call them logs if you want to. You can call them events if you want to. You can call them traces if you want to. I don't care. What matters is they're arbitrarily wide. They've got lots of context, and it's oriented around the request of the user, right? And you know, if you're going to do that in all an unstructured way, that's just going to be a tire fire. It's going to be a mess, right? It's got to be structured. And as soon as it's structured, I kind of don't call them logs. Because I associate logs so much with unstructured strings, I guess. So this is probably just a terminology confusion.
0: That's true. And I think the, the main problem with um, the, the logs, I mean, I've been using FluentD. Then I looked at FluentBit and I said, oh, it's not the same way of building Pipeline. I mean, it's almost the same way, but you have to sort of relearn or look at the new plugins available. And then I looked at Stanza. Mm-hmm. And Stanza is another approach. And then i say, wow. Yeah. So I think if Stanza is going to be part of the collector, so if collect, the OpenTel collector brings an agent that will be the standard, oh, that would just make my life easier. Yeah. I don't have to uh, one day be doing, oh, I'm in mean, bare metal, FluentD is better. Yeah. Now, I mean, in Kubernetes, I need to use FluentD or FluentBit. And then and then people just become crazy because they have to manage yeah. different format, different things. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah.
1: Meanwhile, open telemetry being part of a larger community, this is where the innovation is going to happen.
0: Completely. I mean, open source for me, if you want to do innovation today, you can do it in your basement in the dark and then come in the, in the sun and say, "Hey, I come up with this." And then you wait for feedback. And then suddenly you realize after 2 weeks that all you did during 2 weeks in your basement was wrong. I think with the When you do with open source, first of all, you're not in the basement anymore. You're open with other people you discuss, and you can have instant feedback from someone who says, hey, I've been working on this. You should not do this and do it differently. And I think that's a way of improving the framework in a very fast way and an efficient way. And I think being part of an open source is a way of being always aware of what happens, what would happen soon or maybe in one year. Uh, If you're always in the forefront, then you know what's going to happen Tomorrow, because you are part of that that community. You're part of that innovation.
2: Great. Nice. Well, that was quite a pitch for open source. I think we should leave it there. Thank you so much, Henrik, for joining us. This was really fun.
0: It was really fun. Thank you for inviting me here.
1: Yeah. Yay.
2: That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Olicast.